Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for the opportunity to open Your Holy Scriptures this day, to fellowship with the Beloved, to share, Lord, our testimonies of Your faithfulness unto us even this week, bringing us to this place. We thank You for the provision that is the table of the Lord this morning, through which we remember and proclaim the mighty work of Calvary for the washing and cleansing of our sins the once and for all sacrificed by the high priest who offered his blood for total remission of our sins unto his glory. We thank you, Lord, for providing for us the opportunity to testify and to shine to the goodness and the grace of our God as we speak to others, share with our children, testify to the world the goodness of Christ the kindness of the Lord that has brought us to repentance. And though our sins were dark as scarlet, and though the wrath that we deserved was eternal conscious torment in hell, God Himself became a man, stepped into history and even our hearts, and provided for us sufficient payment for that penalty, ransomed us, breathed life in the death and corpse of our sin, and called us forth from the grave of our apostasy unto new life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Help us, Lord, to be further equipped for the work of your ministry through us by the reading, by the understanding, and the illumination of your holy word. Holy Spirit, it is only you that can do this, and so we cry out for you to make your truth plain unto us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise God. What a great opportunity and glorious privilege it is to open the Scriptures together. And I'd invite you to do it with me by turning to Hebrews chapter 7 this day. Hebrews 7, verse 26 through chapter 8, verse 2. 7, 26 through 8, 2 will be our primary text today. Under the title of this morning's sermon, Perfect Son by Oath. Perfect Son by Oath. That title is selected from verse 28, and it is a term that takes a few of the concepts related to Jesus Christ that I've chosen as our title today. These are ways that the author of Hebrews describes the, superior, the superiority of Jesus and the uniqueness and the efficiency, the effectiveness of his priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek and his once and for all sacrifice for the remission of our sins. This morning, if you have your Bible open, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Would you stand for the reading of God's Word again? Hebrews 7.26 through chapter 8, verse 2. Follow along as I declare God's holy and infallible Word. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Chapter 8, 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this, 
We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Communion Sundays, we have, we have uh, been going through a series of messages following along the author's train of thought in the great book of Hebrews, which leads us to our text today. The literary genius of the author of Hebrews is succinctly stating, demonstrating his literary genius, the author of Hebrews is succinctly stating his conclusions based on material he has already expounded at length, moving up to this text in the chapters prior and verses that have preceded our moment in the text today. Even while he is introducing at the same time concepts that he will develop later on as the letter or sermon unfolds. There is one theory as to the authorship of Hebrews that I, found most in, that I find most intriguing. Some postulate, although the author is unknown, that perhaps it could have been a sermon recorded by Luke, a sermon of Paul recorded by Luke. I find that theory most intriguing for this reason. If you look at the original language, as I've done through the help of some sources, lexicons and the like, and if you look at the concepts that are employed, you definitely seem to see the fingerprints of the Apostle Paul on this book. But the language is a little unique and its word structure is a little different in other ways. So if that is true, then what we have here is a record of a sermon preached by the greatest apostle and it's recorded by one who is perhaps one of the greatest, if not the greatest linguist in all of Christian history, Luke, who was precise and careful and laying out his language. And a team such as this would be adequate to give us the complicated yet powerful and actually to lay them out in a simple and profound way aspects of the complete work of Jesus Christ. And this is part of the sophistication that we see in the book of Hebrews. The amazing fulfillment to the jot and tittle of every single nuanced prophecy prefiguring and prophetic event that preceded Christ arriving on the scene has all been fulfilled in Him. And most of them would be lost on us if we didn't have an intricate familiarity with the Hebrew culture. Though we do not have it, we have nevertheless the preservation of the record before us today. So this morning, in part, I will attempt to reach back into that record, Leviticus and some other portions, to give us some of the background that lets us see the beauty, the complexity, the amazing, overwhelming power of God in fulfilling His declarations of old in the one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Our author this morning uh, has already laid out for us some differences between the old order, the Levitical or the Aaronic order of the priesthood, and what he has turned the Melchizedekian or the priesthood by the order of Melchizedek to describe the work of Christ. As he has been comparing these two respective orders, an order, I'll just remind you, is an office or particular structure, a framework of laws and ideas, almost like a constitution or a governing body or document. 
the order of the Old Testament Levitical priesthood has been contrasted and compared by our author to the order of Jesus Christ and his priesthood, which is related to the order of Melchizedek. Our author draws contrast between these two orders in summary in verse 28. I'll return your attention to our text this morning. Let's read again Hebrews 7, 28. The author records, For the law appoints men in their weaknesses, or in their weakness, as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Just in those phrases, we have the following. We have the, the law of the old covenant, which is uh, in contradistinction, or it's contrasted to the word of the oath. The law was a declaration of the old order, according to Aaron and the Levites, the word of the oath, which we have identified as primarily Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And there's a record later in that psalm of the oath that he has declared uh, uh, the future Messiah as the priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So that's one contrast in verse 28. The second one is, an appoint, is appointed men versus an appointed son. Under the old order, verse 28 says, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But in the new order, according to Melchizedek, which came later than the law, we see at the end of the verse, he appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So law versus word of the oath, appointed men versus appointed son, and then the third contrast is weakness, which characterized those who served in the old office. And then the contrast is eternal perfection. Again, the law appoints men. What kind of men? Men in their weakness as priests. That was the old order. But the word of the oath, which came after or later than the law, appoints a son. And how is he different? He has been made, or he has been made perfect forever. So again, law versus word of the oath, appointed men versus appointed son, weakness versus eternal perfection. Thus, by deduction, we understand Christ, the high priest, the ultimate high priest in these terms as the perfect son by oath. Jesus Christ is the perfect son by oath. That is a description of his high priesthood according to Hebrews chapter 7. Verses 26 through 28 are framed by related and important adjectives. Another note to draw to your attention, the first adjective is fitting. And the second one is perfect. Notice again verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. And then it goes on to describe his attributes and aspects of his character and person. He's holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, and so on. And then again at the end of verse 28, it says that the, under the new order there's an appointed son who has been made perfect, forever. The term fitting, prepo, in the Greek, alternately it could be translated, he became. Uh, older translations might read as follows, for, it, for he became a high priest, holy, innocent, and unstained. But if you look more closely at the connotations of the word, fitting is an even more precise way of describing what the author intends to convey, the author intends to convey. For it, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. The implication here is that there is an exact uh, situation or 
a demand for a particular person to fill. And it had to be a perfect fit, otherwise the objectives would not be met. The idea is there is an arrival or a point of significance. There is a, uh, and this is evident and conspicuous, when you see the demands of what the high priest, the Messiah, according to the Melchizedekian order, must fulfill, it's a tall order indeed. In fact, one of the connotations in the original language is towering up. There's an obvious standard or towering uh, or standing out or imminent idea that must be fulfilled. And the idea is, the concept is, this office is so particular and so demanding that you will know when the qualified candidate arrives. He will fit. And, his, and the criteria and qualifications are so specific that anyone else who would try would prove himself a fool in his first responsibility. There is no other Messiah, no other way of salvation, no other qualified candidate. The priesthood of old is obsolete and gloriously abrogated or fulfilled in Jesus Christ who satisfied all the conditions of old in ways that the old covenant could never do. Why? Because there were mere men plagued with weaknesses, which means infirmities, propensity to sin. But in the new order, the fitting of Jesus Christ to the demands of the law to satisfy the conditions of salvation is absolutely perfect. Like gears of a well-oiled machine perfectly meshed. The second word I want to draw to your attention, or adjective, is perfect. Perfect is related, as I said before, and we've covered this one already in prior texts. The, original, or the uh, Greek word in the original language has as its root teleosis or teleos, teleo, and this term is a variant of that Greek uh, concept that means by design. There's seeming, uh, uh, there's... Uh, circumstances that are reaching their consummate end stage. There's a working through of an entire process, a final phase, a conclusion, accomplishment, fulfillment, completion, and consecration are all in view here. To take the two together and to apply them to Christ would be uh, to say that, uh, as follows. The author is declaring that these conditions of Christ's priesthood uh, show that he is raised to the state befitting of him. If you read this phrase on face value, it might at first be confusing. Again, in verse 28, it says, The oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. In family devotions this week, I was asking my children if they know what the Bible means to convey when it uses the term perfect. And we talked about the differences between the common use of perfect versus imperfect in our language and, and biblical terminology. In the Bible, when you hear this phrase, he appoints a son who has been made perfect forever, it does not mean to imply that there were prior imperfections in Christ. When we set out to perfect something, we imagine that it needs to be tweaked. It doesn't fit. It doesn't work. There's errors, missing parts, or there's brokenness to it, and it must be made whole. Christ was never imperfect. 
It would be the height of blasphemy to claim such a thing. So what is intended in this phrase, he was made perfect. The idea is he completed and fulfilled that which was prophesied of old. In the old covenant, by faith, men were justified in what was to come, yet Christ himself had not been incarnate. As yet, there was an imperfection there then, that is, incompletion or something yet on the horizon. But what does the Bible say? In the fullness of time, in the fitting uh, occasion, historically, perfectly meshed, God's pre-ordered plan with His appointed Messiah came together, and in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the incarnate Son of God was conceived. And at that moment, He fulfilled one of those impossible by, man, by mere man's ability, prerequisites for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is how these concepts are used in this section. This concept of perfection is thematic in Hebrews. There are at least nine mentions, perhaps more if you look at variations, out of the 23 total biblical mentions of the word. And they all appear, these nine all appear in the book of Hebrews in related texts. Here's one that's important and that we've already covered in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. And notice the idea of fitting and perfection come together in one of the author's prior statements. He says, For it was fitting that he, again speaking of Christ, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. I'm, I'm sorry, the uh, object is God the Father. So we're speaking in triune uh, context here. It was fitting that He, God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So again, the tri in the triune context, He, God the Father, in the, uh, did what was fitting, what was demanded by His own decree, what was prophesied of His prophets in the Old Covenant, what was fitting, he brought about, brought to fruition as the founder of our salvation by making Christ, our founder of our salvation, perfect through suffering. Christ must suffer. Christ had to suffer in order for the wrath of God to be satisfied so we could be set free from the hell that our sin deserved. And this was the perfection that took place in the fitting way on Calvary. And so we see these concepts coming together. In chapter 5, verse 9, again, the, perfection, the idea of perfection is in view. Back to verse 8, although he was a son, speaking of Christ, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Again, this idea of coming to fruition is in view. Verse 9, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God, high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. In the chapter that is our focus today, but in some verses prior, we see in 11 and 19 the following. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? And you see, God's perfect plan demanded that Christ would come. In verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. It was incomplete in that sense. 
But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. I wonder if you've ever played the game Guess Who? Some of you have kids, you probably, or maybe you have that game in your house. We have it in the house, but it's in a hundred pieces scattered everywhere. There's many pieces on the game Guess Who? And the way, as I recall, I'm sure I'll get some of this wrong, but you have you and your partner opposite you, and you have a little framework with many portraits. You stand all those portraits up, and each one is an individual person, right? And then the other person has the rack of the, the same portraits. And then the game proceeds with a series of questions. Um, the person has someone selected, and you ask the question, you know, does he have black hair? Um, no, he doesn't. So you knock down all the portraits of black hair. This is an illustration that helps us understand the singularity of the office of Christ. Imagine, if you would, a game of guess who and the following questions. You have all these portraits, first of all, of uh, prophets of old or messianic fig figments of the imagination. What would he be like? Where would he come from? Who could fill that role? You know, these questions were asked of even John the Baptist. Are you the Messiah or should we look for another? Almost like that guess who game. Well, think of these questions. Is he the son of David? Well, yes, he is. So all the portraits of those who went before or alive now who are not the son, sons, descendants of David are ineligible. Secondly, was he spoken of in Psalm 110? Uh, the field's getting really narrowed down now. My Lord said, or the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make uh, my, your enemies your footstool. Was he a priest? Well, yes, he was a priest. So knock down everyone who was a king, but not a priest. Can he intercede for his people? Can he uh, purchase for them communion with Almighty God? Can the God of all perfection uh, maintain fellowship with the sinner? Is that possible? Can the Messiah do this? And more portraits fall down. Is it an angel? No, it is not an angel. Is it Aaron? No, it is not Aaron. Is it Moses, the great mediator of the old covenant law? No, it is not Moses. Is he a high priest? Yes. He is a high priest. Is he priest right now? Yes. Would, will he sacrifice animals? No. Will he sacrifice himself? Yes. Will he pass on his priesthood? No. He is priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. After just those questions, how many portraits are left standing? Brothers and sisters in Christ, they all fell down a long time ago. I didn't need to go through that many questions. There is one portrait standing. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, according to the order of Melchizedek, prophet, priest, and king, the perfect sinless sacrifice who gave himself as our propitiation, who was the fulfillment of everything spoken of before and ever lives to make intercession for us. This is the perfect son by oath, Jesus Christ. The perfect son by oath is set apart by the following three major points. Uniqueness, nature, and position. The perfect son by oath is set apart by his uniqueness. Under uniqueness, the fact that he is high priest. I would add high priest of high priests. He is holy. And we'll see a little context. Secondly, the perfect son by oath is set apart by his nature. Under nature, we find that he is innocent and unstained. This is all in just one verse in our text this morning. These uh, distinctives describing his uniqueness, nature, and, the, and thirdly, his position. 
two things. He is separate and exalted. And the perfect son, therefore, by oath is set apart in verse 26 as we read. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. What kind of high priest? Listen to these modifiers. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. First of all, this morning, the perfect son by oath is set apart by his uniqueness. We see that he is high priest. It was indeed fitting that he sh- we should have such a high priest. Again, only one fits the bill. However, without him, there would be no ultimate mediation between God and man. This high priest is unique, and this uniqueness is evident in his designation as high priest of high priest, if you will. The specificity of his role uh, historically encompassed two things. So if we look at the old covenant, the high priest, his role, his job description was special, unique to him in two ways. Number one was atonement. Number two is authority. He had authority. He, he controlled certain aspects of the temple order. He was looked to as a leader in that regard. But also he had a specific duty, especially on the Day of Atonement, to make atonement for his sins and the sins of the people. As we look at this term uniqueness, it's important to understand that this is absolutely essential, an absolutely essential attribute of Jesus Christ. Uh, This word makes me sound smart, sui generis. You ever heard that before? Not sure the original language, but sui generis means one of a kind, maybe Latin, in a class all to itself, exceptional, extraordinary, particular, special. Jesus Christ is the sui generis, the one of a kind, the only and the unique high priest. The specificity of his role is in part denoted in the fact that he is preeminently the high priest. At the beginning of Hebrews, we saw that he was elevated higher than the highest things we could otherwise think of. You are a son, today I have begotten you. And prior to that testimony, that declaration, the author asked this rhetorical question, to which of the angels did God ever say such things? No angels. So what does this tell us? The uniqueness of Christ places him in a class all to himself above the angels. He goes on and says of the angels, he says you're Uh, messengers of God and flames of fire, but they are not given what is designated for the high priest of high priests in verse 8. A throne, O God, forever, a scepter of uprightness, the scepter of His kingdom. You see there we have authority. You, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will wrap them up like a garment. They will be changed but you are the same and your years have no end. Christ, in his uniqueness, is elevated above the entire created order. The created order has a shelf life. Christ has none. Only in Christ do we have eternal life and outlast what otherwise will decay and become so much relics of ancient history when the new heavens and new earth dawn on us. 
And to which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And so Christ is superior to all of these. Later in chapter 3, he says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of your confession. And then he goes on in contradistinction to show he is greater than Moses. It says, verse 5, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. What kind of son? The perfect son by oath. The son of God. The son who is greater than Moses, greater than Aaron, greater than angels, greater than the prophets, greater than all the created order. As we go back to our text in Hebrews 7, we see in verse 27 some particular aspects of his priesthood. It says, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. How is Jesus higher, that is to say, than any other priest who went before? Well, he uniquely to him has no need, like the prior high priest, to offer sacrifices daily. He goes on, first for his own sins, or and first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So three key words there that begin with O. First of all, own, uh, his own. Uh, the uh, priests of old who were beset with weakness had their own sins. Christ, as the perfect son by oath, was sinless. We, if we read this verse just on its own without the qualifying context, we might guess that he in offering himself, or we perhaps would errantly infer that he in offering himself up uh, once for all, uh, paid for his sins and everyone else. This is indeed not the case. If he had himself been beset with weakness as the sinners who went before the old high priest of the Levitical order, he would not have been sufficient to pay for sinners. But instead, he is qualified by the list that went before. He is holy. He is innocent. He is unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So it is it's exactly because he owns no sin that when he offers himself, his sacrifice is without blemish. It is spotless. The second word beginning with O describing the high priest is once for all. Because of the power and efficacy of this mighty work, it is done once and that is all. Once in the finality of Christ's declaration on the cross, it is finished, signs and seals in his own blood, the document of the covenant of old, now ratified in the one who fulfilled it, that all who receive and cry out and confess salvation in Christ are saved. This is a once-for-all event when he offered up himself, and that leads us to the third O, offering. Christ offered not the blood of bulls and goats, not the provisional sacrifices of old that just merely represented and symbolized the blood that needed to be shed for the remission of sins, but instead He shed His own blood in offering Himself. We see later throughout the text that He provided the sufficient sacrifice that could justify, sanctify, glorify, and resurrect us 
to be with Him forever. The uniqueness of Jesus Christ is highlighted in the fact that He is our high priest according to these distinctives. Secondly, going back to verse 26, we see that the perfect Son by oath is set apart by His holiness. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, etc. But that first term, holy, is important in the apostolic record. As Christ Himself and His work of salvation was being announced through the lips of the initial wave of apostles, they employed these terms right out of the gate. In Acts 2, 27, backing up to 25, Peter professes, As he declares these words, prophetic words of David fulfilled in Christ, he says, David says concerning him, that is concerning Jesus, I "I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One See corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You'll make me full of gladness with your presence. Notice the Messiah in this prophecy is speaking in the first person. It's Christ's own words directed toward the Father. And he's saying, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. In other words, though I will offer my body as a sacrifice... You will not let that body decay. Three short days later, the Holy One, because He is holy and the grave cannot keep Him, and because He is of a different type and order entirely, He is God and man, He will be resurrected. And His holiness will be demonstrated not just in the fact that He is utterly free from contamination, but because He is utterly of a different type or different ontology, if you will, makeup, being, utterly, completely unique. This is powerful, and this is the idea that sets apart Christ as singular and exceptional and extraordinary, the one that has never been seen before and will never be seen again uh, as far as His office repeatable by any man but who instead continues forever, having been resurrected and ascended, now ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. This is Him. This was the announcement in Acts chapter 13. After Saul, now Paul, is converted and proclaiming the same gospel, he says in verse 32, And we bring you the good news, That what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that He raised Him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David." Again, the idea is this complete uniqueness, this set-apartness, this holiness that, set, that reminds us that Christ is the unique one who fulfills Psalm 2, fulfills Psalm 16.10. And if we go back to the language originally employed, the idea is what was sanctioned by a higher law. There is a holy order or standard or uh, on this pedestal 
of prominence and importance and power that is described by the term holiness that only one could fulfill. This holiness accords with divine truth and God's word and proclamation, the specifics of what he has laid down. And hence, this uh, a level of holiness as it is achieved by the one who could possibly do so, and again, there's only one, it deserves this office and this place of significance and prominence deserves the utmost of reverence and respect. It is the sacred, the godly, the beloved, the pious, the law-fulfilling, the standing alone in formal consecration idea that is reserved for the one with the qualifications. And the one, as Hebrews declares, is defined by those exclusive attributes, holiness, innocence, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Turn with me, if you would, to Leviticus 16. In the Old Covenant, the concepts that Hebrews expounds are sown all through the old law that was given as prescription and as instruction for tabernacle worship. In Leviticus Leviticus 16, we have an example of this that we'll read just to get a flavor in verses 11 through 17. As I mentioned, the uniqueness of Christ in that He is a special high priest comes a little bit more to the floor in the context of Aaron's role as we see it here. Verse 11, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, and that cloud, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, that would be the law or the tablets, God's word in the Ark of the Covenant, so that he does not die. Verse 14. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side, and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus, listen, verse 16, thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins." And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. And now we see the covenantal context, if you will, of the high priestly office of old. There are some things that are similar and some things that are vastly different. Similar concepts are atonement, the need to have a way provided into the presence and favor of God. Similar concepts are one representing many. Aaron fulfilled this role. Another similar concept is a sacrifice, a substitute to pay for the sins and uncleanness of those who would approach 
but a gloriously unique aspect of Jesus was the fact that he did not have to sacrifice for his sins, and neither did he take a mere animal, but instead shed his own blood. And if the high priest of high priests sheds his own blood, and if he himself is blameless and perfect, what is the extent of the power of this mighty atoning work? Brothers and sisters, it is the salvation of everyone in this room who confesses the name of Jesus Christ. And all of the elect, from when the gospel is preached and even of old, into the distant future that only he sees, the power of Christ to ransom all those sins was accomplished in that moment when he stepped in beyond the veil, as it were, and sprinkled his own blood on that mercy seat, as it were. And that blood washed away forever all of our sins. Praise His holy name. Secondly, major point this morning, the perfect Son by oath is set apart by His nature. His nature is described in two ways, again in our primary text and primary verse this morning, in Hebrews 7, 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, And then two words, two terms, innocent, unstained. Those two terms, innocent and unstained, a little more briefly, refer to the intrinsic nature uh, that that is incorruptible of Jesus Christ himself. First of all, innocent. The original word means an intrinsic purity. A purity by virtue of its own nature. This is a unique mention in Scripture, especially in this sense. And it means something like the incorruptible or impeccable, that which cannot be compromised by virtue of one's very nature or makeup, void of even the intention or the desire to sin. This is the innocence of Jesus Christ our Lord, our priest and sacrifice. As we uh, see a little more closely looking at the language, uh, one commentator used the term constitutionally harmless or you could say constitutionally perfect or pure. By his very makeup and constitution, he is utterly holy, utterly pure and undefiled. The word itself is akakos or something of that nature, and it's the negating of something else. It means anti, a rotten disposition uh, that seeks to and desires and is bent to inflict harm. And in this sense, we understand the nature of Christ is completely opposite our human nature. We, according to the book of Romans and all of Scripture, are born in our trespasses and sins, and we have this innate proclivity to do the wrong thing, to uh, deceive and connive. The venom of asps is under our tongue. We are full of unrighteousness continually before Christ cleanses us and makes us whole. It doesn't take long at all for that sin nature to boil over in our homes, does it not? As our children display time and again. I can't remember who said it, and this is a paraphrase. I think Malcolm Muggridge or something. He said that the depravity of man is at once the most ignored fact and at the same time the most obvious. The depravity of man is the most obvious self-evident truth in the entire human experience, yet is the one we are most motivated to deny because we have to admit we're broken sinners deserving of hell. That is our condition in our sin. But Christ is literally, in this sense, not 
that. He was born of a virgin, and there was theological significance to this event. Why? He did not inherit the corruption of Adam. The blood poisoning of original sin was not transferred to the blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. So, brothers and sisters, when his blood was shed, it was a pure and holy sacrifice. It was untainted by what has corrupted all of humanity since the fall. It was innocent, constitutionally harmless, intrinsically pure. This is the nature of Christ. The perfect Son, by oath, is set apart by His innocence. Secondly, unstained. The perfect Son in His nature, perfect Son by oath, is set apart by the fact that He is unstained. And this takes the same concept one step further. He is also void, not only of intrinsic problems, but He is also void of extrinsic contamination. He is incapable of being defiled by that which is on the outside. One of my favorite pictures of this in the Gospels is when those who were leprous and had issues of blood and so on, who under the old covenant law for hygienic reasons and for symbolic holiness reasons were rendered unclean, right? So a leper colony was a leper colony because they had to shout unclean, unclean. They could not be touched by what needed to be separated from them. Why? Because symbolically, spiritually, if that uncleanness was touched by the people who had this provisional atonement situation, they themselves would become unclean. Notice in Christ, in His miracles, the situation is entirely different. Not only is He innocent, but He is unstained and unstainable. When the woman with the issue of blood touches His garments, she is breaking the old covenant law. But that old covenant law was abrogated, fulfilled in Christ. When the leper was uh, cleansed, uh, he would otherwise want to retreat from the holy and have to according by law. But now the sinner, the lame, the leprous, those with all manner of infirmities and diseases, they didn't run from Christ, they approached Him. And if they touched Him, what happened? The life-giving resurrection power, the healing authority of Jesus Christ flowed from His body into them and they were perfect. Instead of Christ becoming contaminated, they became pure. This is the power of Christ, absolutely unique. In the old covenant law, this could never happen. But there was one, the high priest of high priests, of whom the old order would be different now. A new covenant, in fact, would ensue. Why? Because he, by his very nature, was perfect, unique, and incorruptible. These are the ideas that are conveyed here. 1 Peter 1, 19. Aaron read this in context this morning as our call to worship text. Other authors in the scriptures pick up on these themes and they're powerful. And notice the, the glory with which Peter expounds on these ideas. He says in verse 18, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. And now notice by contrast verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ. Why precious? Because it's unique. It's one of a kind, extraordinary, never to be replicated. The only source of healing for the soul. The precious blood of Christ, that and like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. 
He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Peter is picking up on it there, is he not? The innocent, the unstained, the unblemished, the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, to whom John the Baptist pointed, had come and shed his perfect saving blood for us. Covenantal context. Turn with me to Leviticus 21. Again, as we reach back in the Old Covenant order, there was instructions in the law that anticipated and taught the people. They teach us as we read the importance of innocence and maintaining an unstained status, if you will. And we see this even in the laws that were written down in Leviticus 21.1. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people. Notice that these are special instructions for the priests so that they could maintain ceremonially an innocent and unstained status. Said except for his closest relatives, his mother's father's son, his daughter's brother, and so on. Uh, verse 4, he shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people and so profane himself. They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. Verse 6, they shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. For they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. Verse 7, they shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled. Neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband. For the priest is holy to his God. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, uh, who sanctify you, am holy. And so you see the theme there, you see the main idea on that last phrase. Because the Lord is holy, He demands that His priests be sanctified. And so these provisions symbolically represented that innocence and that unstainedness, if you will. They were to separate themselves from the ceremonial, again, contamination of a dead body. And they were to be careful in their relationships to maintain something distinct. Yet in all of this, It was just a figure. It was just a symbol. It was just a metaphor and a picture of what would be fulfilled in Christ. God the Father in His perfection demanded a priest, a high priest who is absolutely incorruptible and uncorrupted. And Jesus Christ was His name, who in His very nature was innocent and unstained and therefore the effective priest who reigns forever at the right hand of the Father and intercedes before the Lord on our behalf. Finally this morning, the perfect son by oath is set apart by his position. There's two terms again in Hebrews 7 that refer to uh, their uh, figures of speech referring to location. And in these two, the one is separated from sinners and the other is exalted in the heavens. And these are what make the uh, priesthood of Christ perfect, fitting, and uh, utterly different than anything that had preceded him. Again, verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, and then these two designations by phrase, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. These two phrases refer to a different position that Christ assumes. This idea of separation is similar to what we just read of in Leviticus 21, 1 through 12. If you turn back later in your own time, Leviticus 15, verse 31, for instance, this idea of separation 
is a concept in the law. The, when the people moved into the promised land, they were to maintain separation from the uh, pagans, nations around them. Why? Because they were to be separate from sinners in a similar idea as to what is conveyed here. But Christ himself was set apart in a different way entirely. Although there's a figure of speech that uses a location or a spatial reference, what is actually meant here is something greater than just Jesus Christ separating himself by distance from his people. Indeed, he came and dwelt among us. He even uh, shared meals with sinners. But this set-apartness, this consecration of Christ was by virtue of his sinless perfection, not by spatial proximity. In fact, he could come in contact with this wicked world again because he was intrinsically separate from sinners. And as we become Christ-like and as the Lord does a mighty work of regeneration in our own heart, we see something of this idea even as part of our calling. When the, when the Bible describes you interacting in a sinful world as light, what is the concept meant to convey? You're entirely different. What does light have akin to darkness? Yet you are in the darkness. You're in the darkness, but not of it. In fact, you affect the darkness and you push it away. So again, the spatial proximity is a metaphor. What's really being conveyed is you're of a different sort now when you're a new creation in Christ. But this different sort has an effect on the rest and it actually influences and pushes back the dark. In the same way, salt. Salt never loses its properties per se in this illustration, but it certainly affects everything it comes in contact with. How about leaven? Leaven that affects the whole lump. And so we see that what Christ does by virtue of who he is, even in the heart of believers, while we are separate from sinners, come out and be separate, says the Lord. Nevertheless, we can interact in this fallen world by affecting the darkness to his glory. Christ did this as the one who went before, and so we follow him. And in this model, he shines and proclaims his word even through his people. The second position reference is exalted above the heavens. And this one we could dwell on for some time. Suffice it to say this morning, think of Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, Christ's ascension and his session or his ruling and reigning. Part of the proof of the uniqueness of Christ, the fact that he is the perfect son by oath and is set apart is the fact that he was raised and ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father. I've mentioned to you in the past that some think that Hebrews is actually a sermon expounding and applying to Christ, Psalm 110, that prophecy, the Lord saying to his Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So when we see these phrases in Hebrews, that immediately comes to mind. Christ is unique in that he is exalted above the heavens. He is the perfect son in that he has ascended before the Father that speaks to his kingship and his authority. But it speaks to more than that. In chapter 8, we read the following. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is where? Seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So that in context would be a reference then to exalted above the heavens. What is this idea of his vaunted status, of his elevated state? It's the idea that he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. <clears throat> Verse 2, 
a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And here's where we have that additional reference. The tabernacle or place of meeting is now in view. This exalted above the heavens or this place in glory is correlated or associated with the holy place of old, the tabernacle of old. Verse 4, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So here's the idea. Christ was resurrected and in so doing proved that he was a glorious, unique, perfect son who could satisfy our sins and showed his power in resurrection. But it wasn't complete yet. It was fitting not only that he be raised from the dead, but it was also fitting that he would ascend. Not only that he would ascend, but that he would be seated. Not only that he would be seated, but he would ever live to make intercession for us. Again, verse 25 of 7. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So in a sense, the fulfillment of the incessant mediation, the always praying and advocating on our behalf is fulfilled in Christ in glory, where he in his high priestly role represents us before the Father, exalted above the heavens and doing so there and now on our behalf. The covenantal context we won't go to specifically, but if you wanted to, you could go back to Leviticus 20, 24 through 26, where we read of this necessary separation. You could go back to Exodus 40, 34 through 35, where you see the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle, even as Christ and His glory fills the new Jerusalem, as He shines with the power that He represents and there intercedes as our high priest. That is the covenantal context. And now let us close this morning. Again, in summary, the perfect son by oath is set apart by his uniqueness, by his nature, and by his position. We mentioned that as high priest, one way he is unique is that he offered himself as the gift and offering before the Lord on the altar. Communion this morning represents that very act. The elements of bread and wine represent the body and blood of Christ sacrificed for us. Just touching on several references, as we continue to read, I mentioned to you that there are things, the tone is set for further expounding later. And this idea of Christ shedding his own blood as the offering for our sin is picked up in many places throughout Hebrews. Chapter 9, verse 11 and 12, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, it is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. 9.26, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
chapter 10, verse 10. Behold, or verse 9, then he added, Behold, I come to do your will. He abolishes the first order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And the last one this morning, same chapter, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us transition in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, our High Priest, and our sacrifice. We thank you for delivering to us this meal this day, which commemorates and proclaims the gift and offering of Christ's own blood placed on the altar on our behalf as our high priest so that the perfect son by oath who is set apart and one of a kind in the offering of himself has become the ultimate mediator. He is both, Jesus, you are our high priest and sacrifice. We thank you for this. We thank you for the great privilege of being born at this time on the theater of history because we read in the scriptures and observe through the ages as you make your word and glory known that Christ has come. And so now we are the great beneficiaries and stewards of this message. I pray that it would be real to our hearts as we partake in these elements today and so real in fact that it would shine to others beyond this place. In the name, the holy name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.